I'm Catholic and just in the Christian faith in general, a lot of people just associate it with like a lack of faith. Like, well, you're just not trusting in God enough. It's like, how offensive would that be to tell someone that was just diagnosed with like cancer or if like a child had a broken arm to be like, you're just not looking on the bright side enough. Like you need to pray about it more. Like this is an actual illness and this isn't something that can just be prayed away. Granted, like there's truth to the fact that having a deep faith can comfort you, but it's not something that like you can just pray this away. Hi, folks. Before we get into today's episode, this is your friendly reminder that this podcast is for education, information, and entertainment only, and is not a substitute for professional mental health care. If you or someone you love is struggling with their mental health, please reach out to a mental health professional for individualized and personalized care. Welcome back for another episode of Beyond Postpartum, or if this is your first time here, hello and welcome. I'm so glad you found us. I'm so glad you found this podcast. Beyond Postpartum is a podcast put out by the Pacific Postpartum Support Society, and my name is Heather. I get to be your host, and I'm also one of the peer support staff and group facilitators at Pacific Postpartum. Pacific Postpartum is located in Burnaby, British Columbia, which is the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Stalo First Nations. We serve and support families locally, all over British Columbia, Canada, and even internationally. For today's episode of Beyond Postpartum, I am super excited to introduce you to Allie Bright-Hamill, who is a mom, and she's now an author of a children's book, which is a children's book for moms and parents too, not just for kids. It's so awesome. I can't wait for her to tell you all about it. She also shares her own journey with postpartum anxiety and depression and what that looked like for her and her recovery. She also recently lost her younger brother in a very tragic accident, so she does also talk about that too. And if that's something that might be hard for you to hear about if you're going through recent loss yourself, just be aware that that's coming, and that's kind of woven throughout our conversation. She also talks about her faith and how that has been important on her journey, and we talk about, you know, a bajillion other things too, which if I were to list them all, this intro would be as long as the interview <laughs> and boring. So we're going to jump into the conversation. I also wanted to let you know that we do talk about suicidal thoughts. And again, if this is something that you feel like might be hard for you to hear about, please take care of yourself. You're always welcome to pause or skip ahead or anything like that. You know yourself best, please take care of yourself. But I think it's a really important discussion for us to have. And I'm going to jump in at the end, of course, and talk a little bit more about that and maybe some of the other themes that emerged in our conversation. 
And Salimi, I forgot to say the name of Ali's book. <laughs> Ali's book is called If Mommy's Being Honest. And it's a really beautiful poem that she originally wrote for her son and then turned it into a book. So keep that in mind as we jump into the conversation. And I look forward to joining you again at the end. Hi, my name is Allie Bright Hamill, and my story kind of begins back when I was in high school. I started struggling with anxiety and depression really badly my junior year of high school. And that is when my now husband, David, um, we had been dating since I was 14. We started dating my freshman year. He went to my parents and told them, you know, Allie is not acting right, she's crying all the time things that usually don't get to her are really stressing her out. And I think something's, you know, really seriously wrong. And so my parents decided to make an appointment um, with my counselor and they said that I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and they did offer me counseling and medication. And I opted to only do medication. And that's one of my biggest regrets is looking back. I wish I would have taken advantage of the counseling because in retrospect, I think all the struggles that I had later on with my pregnancy and then postpartum, I would have dealt with it much better and coped. And so um, that's probably one of my biggest regrets is I think anytime that counseling is offered to you, that that's probably an indication that it would definitely be beneficial. And so it's definitely one of my biggest regrets is not taking advantage of that. And so I started taking my medication and I took that from my junior year of high school until um, I ended up finding out I was pregnant years later with my son, Dawson. And so David and I, we did, we got married fairly young. We were only 20. Everybody kind of makes fun of us that we couldn't even drink at our own wedding reception. (laughs) But yeah, we got married very young and I think we got pregnant young too. So I was, I'm thinking I was 21 at the time that I got pregnant. I started uh, having symptoms of my anxiety was just getting worse and we started feeling like my medication, you know, wasn't working. And so we had called and scheduled an appointment with my doctor. And actually before we went in to have the appointment with him to say, hey, I think I either need to change the medication or get off of it. I found out that I was pregnant. And so I stopped taking it cold turkey, um, which I definitely would not recommend. I, when we went in and saw my doctor with the appointment that we had originally scheduled. And I said, Hey, I just stopped taking it. He was like, we really should have weaned you off of that. (laughs) And that's not something that you should have done. But, um, he was like, since you're already off of it, we'll keep you off of it. And if symptoms, you know, start to arise, then we'll maybe talk about putting you back on something different since you are pregnant. And so I actually coped really well. It wasn't until my son was born in January. He was actually the New Year's baby in our town. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So his birthday is January 1st. That was definitely interesting too, just going in as like the balls getting ready to drop and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm going into labor. Yeah, that made for a fun evening. But I coped really well. And it wasn't until around Christmas time that I had my very first experience with like a truly debilitating anxiety attack. I wanted to get my husband some stocking stuffers. And so I just remember I got in the car, I drove to Walmart. And as I was getting out of the car, I just felt for whatever reason, like I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing and I felt like I was in actual danger. And I now know with going to counseling that my body was having a physiological response to, you know, I was having an anxiety attack, but 
I had never experienced that before. So I really, I mean, it freaked me out. I just, I was so debilitated by it. And I got back in my car and just cried and sobbed. And I was like, I cannot go into Walmart. I can't go get my husband's stocking stuffers. I ended up calling my mom. I went back home, pretended like nothing happened and called my mom and said, Hey, would you want to go to Walmart with me? And just having her accompany me to Walmart, I was able to get through that. But that night I spoke with my husband about it. And I said, you know, this is what happened. I'm pretty sure this was an anxiety attack. And we both foolishly just kind of chalked it up to this is your first baby. You know, you're eight months pregnant. You're not sleeping well. This is probably normal. And so I just kind of swept that under the rug and I didn't have any more experiences where I was like that debilitated until then after my son was born. So my labor and um, pregnancy or my labor story isn't like super exciting. We went in and I had him actually very, very quickly. I think we were there for a total of like five hours my anxiety during it was really bad during just, I guess, the laboring and everything. That was probably the hardest part. Obviously, the pain was extremely intense, but I just, I genuinely in my head thought I was going to die and I couldn't handle the pain and it was just really scary. And so after my son was born, I do feel like when they first handed him to me because the labor was just more than what I expected. And it was like very emotionally traumatic for me. When they handed my son to me, I didn't feel super connected to him. You know, that moment that like all moms talk about and they look at their child and they immediately feel connected. I didn't feel that right away. It wasn't until the next day when we had a bunch of visitors, he kept getting handed around from person to person to person and it was, it felt like hours upon hours. And I don't think it was that long at all, but it felt like forever until I finally got to hold him again. And when my husband brought him over to me and handed my son to me, that is when I had my moment of just like pure connection. I cried and I was so happy. I was his mom and in the hospital, since we had a lot of help, I don't know that my symptoms were showing through to the nurses as much as like how bad I was struggling on the inside. I do remember when they wheeled me down from the hospital to our car that I just was sobbing and asking the nurse, like, did we ask enough questions? Do we seem like we know what we're doing? Because I just couldn't believe that, like, they're just sending us home with this baby. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just so overwhelmed and we were so young and I just remember thinking, how, how are they sending us home with this baby? Like, I, I don't know what to do. And My husband took off that first week from work and that entire week, he and my mom were the only ones that changed his diaper or changed his clothes because every time I would go to do it, I would just start shaking. I I would cry and, you know, they were like, are you okay? And I was like, he's just so fragile. Like I had, I loved babysitting, but I had never been around a baby that didn't have, you know, head control and could lift its head up. And he was just so intimidating to me. I just was so panicked and I didn't like, it felt aggressive to have to kind of like yank his head through the shirts. And when you change their diapers, you know, he's kicking and like holding his legs and everything just felt like I'm going to break him slowly, but surely, you know, I was able, obviously my husband was only home that first week. So, you know, I started changing his diapers, changing his clothes and I 
was able to get the hang of that. But um, my anxiety symptoms just progressively got worse. If I would go to shower, uh, I would swear that I would hear my son crying. And, you know, I'd run out of the shower and he'd just be like, my husband would just be holding him and he'd be asleep in his arms. And I had a lot of anxiety nursing in front of people. I feel like I am the biggest advocate for nursing in public, but I myself just cannot do it. I don't know what it was. That's just nobody explains to you that like milk flies everywhere. (laughs) They don't always latch on super easily. And so it just, it was very anxiety provoking for me because I'm, I do get uncomfortable. Like I'm fairly modest and just the thought of like talking to like my father-in-law or my grandpa and he would pull off and like milk would shoot all over was just like mortifying to me due to having anxiety nursing when we were out with friends or family, I was very isolated. So I would separate myself and leave. I just, I wasn't sleeping well. I would be up all night. My husband was like, I can't tell you how many times I'd roll over. Both he and Dawson would be asleep and I would be researching on my phone and writing stuff down. Um, SIDS just terrified me. And then I also wasn't driving. So my son was probably almost two before I drove him for the first time. And so that also led to a lot of isolation. I lost a lot of friends through that process just because since I obviously friendship, a lot of times is very much a two-way street. And I don't think anyone understood that I was truly in a position where like, I just, it couldn't be a two-way street. Like I needed a one-way and I needed support. And there were just a lot of friends and family that weren't very understanding of that. Yeah, I was very, very isolated. And eventually around five months, I decided to seek help because I started having suicidal thoughts. That was something that was really hard for me to come forward to with my husband. And he responded so well. My husband, I always tell everybody he's just a saint. Like he was so supportive all through this, but that's what was so hard was going to him and telling him this because most of the people around you, if you say like, I'm having suicidal thoughts, they internalize that and they think it's something that they are or aren't doing. And I think that's where there's just this huge misunderstanding of what depression like really is, is it can steal your will to survive basically. And it's not that anyone could do anything more or less. It's just, I was mentally ill. You know, I just, I wasn't well, I wasn't functioning and I really needed help. And so after I finally went to him about having those suicidal thoughts, um, I did go to counseling I finally ended on a third counselor, but it took two other kind of flops where it wasn't a great fit. And then I finally found a third counselor that I just really clicked with. She actually was part of um, our church and she would tie faith into my counseling sessions. And it was just really beneficial. And I don't know, have you ever heard of RRT? It's rapid resolution therapy. No, I haven't heard of that one, but tell us about it. Tell us about RRT. So yes, it's fairly new. I'm assuming it's not crazy new just because we live in a little small town in Indiana. And I would assume we're not like the first people (laughs) to get, you know, new technologies, new music, new anything. But so the counselor that I was seeing, she actually kind of said like, hey, I'm getting trained in this. Um, It's a fairly new type of therapy. And they originally, I believe, started using it for soldiers that had PTSD. 
And it's this, I don't know how to explain it the best. She would always kind of explain it as it's a therapy session that lasts about two hours. There's different, they tell like parables throughout it. There's a slight like hypnosis tendencies in it. And then um, it's just all about kind of connecting your primal brain, I guess, like your inner core, which is like all instincts and natural and more primal to your upper brain, which is your thinking brain. Um, The analogy she would always use for me was like a little rabbit out in the yard. If it was, you know, eating grass and a fox came, the rabbit would run down into a hole and burrow away. And we as humans would have the ability to like sit under there and start worrying and be like, oh my gosh, what if the fox is still there? And like, what if he brought friends? And what if they're, you know, doing all of these things? And we can attach meaning to things that aren't necessarily needed. Whereas the bunny rabbit just burrows into the hole and five minutes later it pops its head up and it's not thinking about what if that fox is still there. It's able to truly be in the moment and just respond to in the moment things. I did this RRT with her and I feel like it's just affected me on such a deep level that counseling obviously really helped, but doing that on top of it has just allowed me to be so much more mindful um, and just in the moment. And so anyone that's considering counseling, I truly would recommend they look into RRT. It helped me on such a deep level. And I feel like it's just allowed me to be more mindful without having to like super intentionally be mindful. It just like kind of subconsciously happens. But I feel like that has definitely helped me a lot. And I really don't think with the RRT, like had I not done that, I know we had talked a little bit before about my brother's passing. But I do not think I would be coping as well with this had I not underwent that and had that as a stepping stone to like getting to mental wellness. I think I would be truly debilitated by his passing. And I guess a little backstory to that is my younger brother recently on June 7th, he was killed with two of his friends um, in a car. They were struck by another vehicle and all four people involved in the accident were killed. And so I guess though, it's just taught me on such like a deep level that situationally that has no effect on your mental well-being. Because when I had Dawson and I wasn't driving him for almost two years, I had zero trauma associated with driving. And I still, my mind would just go crazy. And I would have these intrusive thoughts that were so repetitive and so like truly traumatic. I felt like they were actually happening in the moment that I could not drive him. And now after years of going through counseling, the RRT and a lot of hard work on myself, I have actual trauma associated with driving and I'm still able, you know, to get in the car and drive. And so just on a really deep level, I feel like it's just shown me so much that there's just the stigma that like, when someone's depressed or anxious, there has to be a reason. And it's like, I have a reason now. And I underwent, you know, the hard work and the counseling and everything. And life has thrown a huge curveball in my path. And I'm still able to function at a, you know, I'm able to cope with these things much better than had this happened, you know, years ago when I had no counseling under my belt. But yeah, I just feel like I... I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm a huge advocate for mental wellness now on an even deeper level because 
of his passing, it's just shown me that even though I'm deeply grieving and this is truly the most heartbreak I've ever experienced. Um, I mean, I have both my grandparents, like both sides of my family, my grandparents are here. I've not experienced any deep loss or experienced deep grief where it affects me on not even just a daily level, but like minute by minute, I'm always thinking about him and still trying to process everything that's happened. But I'm just so thankful that I'm able to experience these like deep, intense feelings and not question if I should still be on the planet. I'm able to, you know, have like, I literally, ever since June 7th, I've cried every single day and I'm still able to not have these suicidal thoughts or have intrusive thoughts of, you know, driving and all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. I'm able to, on a deep how I was saying with the RRT, it's almost like on a primal level when I start having those thoughts, it's just an immediate like red flag kind of goes up in my brain of, is this helpful or not? Is this true or not? A lot of times our brain can create all of these like false realities. And it's like, that's not even real. The stuff that, you know, you're conjuring up in your mind, that's not, that's not happening right now. And to able to be kind of reshift my focus and be back in the present moment and say, he isn't here and I'm heartbroken about it, but I'm still okay in this moment. And my faith tells me that I will see him again and just kind of clinging on to that. You've made such an important distinction there that like mental illness and feeling grief and sadness are not the same thing. No, they are not. That's one thing. Actually, I even remember kind of having since other families are involved, it's been very interesting just kind of hearing people's judgments of, well, so-and-so is grieving this way and so-and-so is grieving that way. And, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, well, one, we all lost different people. We're all grieving differently. And two, some of us are truly because of this going to go through mental illness. I have no doubt that someone impacted by this is going to go through the situation of, they are no longer just grieving, but they're truly being debilitated by either anxiety or depression or even OCD. I mean, there's all different facets of mental illness. And so I have no doubt that someone impacted by these four losses are going to be affected. And I just hope and pray that there's empathy and understanding within their support systems, because especially the parents, like I lost my brother, but My mom, thankfully, she's, you know, coping fairly well. I mean, as best as you could expect, if she was having trouble, you know, getting out of bed or she wasn't able to drive, you know, those are red flags where those don't need judgment. It needs empathy of, okay, like her mind is starting to spiral out of control and she's going to need help reining that control back in. And that's what women with postpartum depression, anxiety, OCD, whatever it is, any perinatal mood disorder they're spiraling to the point that they are no longer in control of themselves, not to the point where they're like dangerous, but they're not in control of these intrusive thoughts. And if they don't know how to cope and handle them, they're just going to continue to spiral and they need that support and empathy and understanding of, okay, this isn't something you're choosing. This isn't you, you know, being lazy or being a bad mom. It's you truly needing help because you're not mentally well in this moment. Yeah, you said something when you were talking about your own suicidal thinking that, you know, I think 
it's so important that you were able to like recognize that as like not not a value judgment on yourself and that your partner was able to recognize that too. Cause I, we ask almost everybody we talk to will ask if they're experiencing thoughts of suicide and some people will respond with like, Oh, I would never do that to my family or to my child. And it's like, yeah, but that's not what it's about. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. about a choice. It's about your brain is in a lot of distress and it's starting to, play these thoughts. And sometimes it plays the thoughts to the point where you start to believe them. Oh, definitely. And mine actually, it was just kind of talking through it with my counselor. We kind of figured out basically what was happening because almost every time I would have suicidal thoughts, it was in the evening. And so my husband would be asleep. Dawson would be asleep. And my mind, like I said, I'd be researching and I would just start to have like these awful panic attacks, which truly feel like you're dying And my brain then would think like, okay, you're dying. Like that's what's needed for this to end. Mm. And that's where it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to die. It was, I just wanted the pain and like the trauma I was going through in those moments to end. I didn't want to end forever. I wanted that moment to end. And I think thankfully, you know, I had my faith. I was, I had a husband who didn't care if I woke him up in the midst of that, but for women that are experiencing that alone, especially like single moms or mothers that do have a husband that would be upset at them for waking them up. I just, I can't even imagine going through that, you know, alone. And then, you know, truly feeling like you're losing your mind. Mm -hmm. It would just be awful. Another thing too, I don't know if it's been like talked about is I was diagnosed with premenstrual dysphoric disorder. That's something too, I guess I could share a little bit with my story is So I'd say up until like two years, well, maybe it was just a year, I'd say a year um, after Dawson was born is when I was experiencing like the depressive, a intense depressive episode of just always sad. There was no like rhyme or reason to it. And then in the second year and then into the third is when my husband and I started noticing like I would be going to counseling. I would feel, you know, like I was making all these great steps forward and um, that I was just really doing well. And then it just seemed like clockwork out of nowhere. I would start getting hit with like suicidal thoughts again and just panic attacks. And I would regress and then it would be like the cycle of I'd regress and then I'd start doing great and great. And then I'd regress and I'd have suicidal thoughts and I'd do great. And it was just this endless cycle of super highs and then super lows. My Facebook feed, um, I follow just different mental health pages. And one of them had an article about premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And I started reading about it and I was like, David, I think this is like what's happening. And he read it and it, you know, it was saying how it's cyclical and it's typically the week before you start your period, you're body does not process the super drastic change in your hormones. And so it's not something that can necessarily be fixed, but just by I've been taking progesterone, it's like three days after I ovulate until I start, I take progesterone. I no longer am having suicidal thoughts during those moments of um, when my, in my cycle, when I'm ovulating and everything. And I don't know, it's just It's crazy that it was cyclical like that and that there's an actual name and, you know, a reason that this was happening to me and I had no idea. 
And so after I had been tracking it and realized like, yes, this is what's happening. It made me feel not so crazy, I guess, because I did. I felt like I was losing my mind because I would be doing so well for weeks. And then it would just hit me like a truck that I would just be back to this super deep depressive blow. And like I said, when I was tracking it, it was like clockwork every single time. It was the week before I would start. And so um, basically, premenstrual dysphoric disorder is like PMS, but on steroids. And I think from what I've read, like most women will have suicidal thoughts. And that's one of the symptoms to kind of look out for because it's just, it's way more intense than just feeling a little irritable or feeling a little like lazy or tired. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Allie, because it is something that I think 8% of of women will go through that, which is quite high. Like that's a lot of people. Yes. And, you know, I, I often wonder if people have PMDD, but then get a diagnosis of bipolar, if just the, whoever you see isn't uh, knowledgeable. Yeah. Isn't knowledgeable on hormones and yes, that stuff. So yeah, I think it's something we need to really talk about more and, yeah. So thank you for sharing. Oh, definitely. I feel like if it can help anyone, I have no problem being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of my family, that might be the first they're hearing that. I mean, my parents, my husband, my in-laws know that I've been like diagnosed with that, but that's actually something I've not really talked a ton about just because it can almost, and it, I shouldn't feel this way, but it can, it can feel a little embarrassing of like, okay, in high school, I had anxiety and depression. And then after my son, I had, you know, postpartum depression and anxiety. And then now I have this and like, it just can kind of feel embarrassing, I guess. I don't know, but it, I do think it's healing to know that there's a name and a reason for what, um, you know, people are going through. And then it just helps break down the the stigma, right? Especially things like postpartum stuff and even like just regular run of the mill depression, and anxiety, oh, it yeah. affects so many of us. And then right now going through all the, like a global pandemic and all the upheaval mm-hmm. of that is going to, I think, tip people who are maybe coping. Okay. Just over the edge. So it's. Oh, definitely. And then I just think there's a lot of people that don't, since they don't understand it, there's no way that they could even comprehend supporting it. And so I just know, I think, especially like in the, in the faith, like in my, I'm Catholic and just in the Christian faith in general, a lot of people just associate it with like a lack of faith. Like, well, you're just not trusting in God enough. And Mm -hmm. it's like, how offensive would that be to tell someone that was just diagnosed with like cancer or if like a child had a broken arm to be like, you're just not looking on the bright side enough. Like you need to pray about it more. Like this is an actual illness and this isn't something that can just be prayed away. Granted, like there's truth to the fact that like having a deep faith can comfort you, but it's not something that like you can just pray this away unless it was a miracle. It would be the same miracle to take mental illness away as it would be for someone to just miraculously be cured of cancer. Yeah. People just giving like just inappropriate platitudes of like, have you thought about, you know, doing a gratitude journal every day, (laughs) like write something down that you're thankful for. And it would, it would put me in such a even deeper depression because it was like, if you are looking at me when I'm trying to share my pain and you're telling me that I'm not thankful enough, like 
that's such a deep dagger to the heart because it's like, that's part of what's causing the depression is I have so much to be thankful for and I can't figure out why I'm still feeling this way. Yeah. That idea that it's, it's somehow our fault. Like we're just not trying hard enough. Yes. Yeah. Kind of thing. And things like gratitude journals and, you know, any other sort of like practice like that. It's like, well, yeah, that's not going to hurt. It's not but... a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great idea, but to yeah. think that that's going to heal or cure you is kind of a foolish assumption to make. I was met with a lot of that when, you know, I would try to share with people um, my pain kind of. And I do think it might've been my fault because maybe I was just wanting to vent, but it just seems like anytime somebody, even in grief, I'm seeing this, like if I go to someone with pain over losing my brother, they almost have to respond with like a way to kind of clean it up and fix it. Mm. And it's something that it's like in this exact moment and like right now, this can't be fixed. Telling me to look on the bright side isn't necessarily going to help because I'm already trying to look on the bright side. It's something's happening in my heart, you know? Yeah. And I think that probably speaks more to a general like societal discomfort with pain and sadness and grieving. Definitely. We don't have practice, you know, like sitting with people through really hard emotions. So it's a tough one because it's like, it can be really hurtful for the one receiving it, but the person that's saying it is like, (laughs) they're getting comfort out of it. Yes. And their intentions are good. That's what I did have to look at that when I was going through the postpartum depression is, you know, people's intentions were never bad. It's just, they didn't know how to support me, you know, and getting like getting me a gratitude journal, obviously they were not intending to hurt me, but they were understanding the spiraling thoughts that I was having. And that when you gift someone that there's kind of another unspoken, you know, side to that. So it's like, well, here's a gratitude journal because (laughs) you're not feeling thankful enough or here's a prayer journal because I don't know if you're praying enough. It just, the, these unspoken things that maybe they weren't even, that wasn't implied, but you and your brain in that moment of, you know, being in this deep Valley kind of fills in that silence of they gifted me this and it's because they're thinking this about me. And that's something too, I always struggled with. And even still now, is just always worrying what people think. And it definitely does not get better when you become a mother. It's almost worse when you're a mother. Yes, yes, definitely. That's what I was going to say. Never, like, even just discipline. Like, if I'm trying to, like, if my son's in the middle of a meltdown, when I'm at home, it's like, okay, these are, this is the way I respond. This is what I believe in. I really am into just gentle parenting and I don't know, just very trying to be very calm and, you know, no harsh punishing. We don't spank. And that's totally fine when we're like at our house. And the second, like you're out at Walmart or at a family get together and you've got all these people watching you, it can feel so overwhelming because you're like, they're watching me in their mind. They think I'm not disciplining or in their mind, they don't understand that, you know, this is why I'm doing it because of this belief in my heart or, you know, it just, it gets so overwhelming. I hate that in public. And that's something that I still, I would say, just with the postpartum issues, my son is now a little over three and a half. And 
I still struggle very, very badly going um, into public with him without my husband because Mm -hmm. of that anxiety of what if he has a tantrum? What if he freaks out and I have to deal with this all by myself? Like I just never feel equipped enough. Well, that judgment is so pervasive. And then it also feels like as parents, we can't really win because there's going to be judgment either way. Oh, definitely. I was just having a conversation with someone this morning about that. Like if you stay, if you're stay at home parent, you are messing up your kid because you should be going to work. And if you're at work, you're a terrible parent because you should be home taking care of your kid. Like there's, there's just no, there's no winning. And I think it's Uh like this process of trying to figure out how to stand in your own truth, which. Mm -hmm. And you even, you just saying that, the, that you can't win that just like triggered a super deep memory that I have with my postpartum journey is I remember, cause like I said, I had really bad anxiety nursing in front of people. And I had a friend that she had come in from out of town and she messaged me. And I had literally just been crying the night before to my husband about not having friends and nobody wants to come visit and I'm all alone all day. And, you know, and then she messages me and she's like, Hey, I'm going to come visit and it'll be great. And I'm, I can stay with you all day. And at first I was really excited and like, great, I can't wait to see you. And then all of a sudden the anxiety hit of, okay, I am going to be alone with her. And if he, you know, freaks out, my son was pretty colicky. So if he's freaking out, like I'm going to have to deal with all of that in front of her and I'm going to have to nurse in front of her and I'm going to have to, you know, change his diaper in front of her and change his clothes and just all of this stuff that, you know, most people wouldn't in their mind, if they're not going through, you know, postpartum depression, it's like no big deal. But for me, just like doing it in front of somebody else who might be making judgments on me was so overwhelming. And I just started bawling to my husband and saying like, I can't win. Like no matter what I do, I just feel like I can't win. Mm. And I will never forget just that deep, deep low and sadness of just constantly feeling like that within that first, you know, year and a half of postpartum. And I really do think had I gone to counseling, I maybe would have dealt with some of the stuff that was triggering all of that. But yeah, it was, I just felt like I was in such a pit Mm. and I couldn't get out. I just felt like how you said, like, you just can't, I couldn't win. There was no situation where I could be fully happy. And that's what just with even anxiety, it's kind of this miss your misjudgment of, okay, here's a problem and it's going to be this big. And then here's my ability to cope with it. And you completely underestimate your ability to cope with it. And it just becomes this huge thing like her coming over. I shouldn't have been responding that way naturally, but because I was going through a mental illness, my body just wasn't responding the way that it usually would. And that's what, even with counseling, I've learned so much about physiologically what you go through. So for me, before having Dawson, getting in the car, nothing physiologically would be going on in my body. I would turn on the radio, listen to music, pull out of the driveway and, you know, be on with my day. But then after having Dawson, you know how I said I was having all these intrusive thoughts of like, I just kept picturing being in a car accident and him not making it. And I just pictured like the paramedic telling me like, your son didn't make it you were driving and it was your fault. And what that does to you on a physiological level is crazy. Like your body actually is responding 
as if somebody has a gun to your head or as if a bear were chasing you. So like me getting into the car, my muscles were tightening, adrenaline's going through. I'm starting to have shortness of breath because, you know, everything's tightening up and I'm starting to feel, you know, scared and frantic. And that can just be so overwhelming to someone that, you know, on a normal day before all of this, you wouldn't experience that. And then all of a sudden you're just trying to simply get into your car and your body's screaming like, run, 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 danger, danger, danger. And you don't know how to cope with it. That's what counseling just, I feel like it's just taught me just different ways to cope with feeling like that. And even after um, just last year, so this is, I'm still, this is very much part of my journey. Just last year, we had to leave my husband's Christmas work party get together because I had an anxiety attack. And I remember going to my counselor and, you know, I was like, I made all this progress. Like I did not think this was going to happen anymore. And it was embarrassing. And we just had to get up and leave. And, you know, she's kind of asking, well, what was leading up to that? And, you know, there were all these different triggers. And she was like, you have to give yourself grace because everybody else around you, these were happening, but they were just experiencing stress they weren't experiencing an anxiety disorder. They were not experiencing their body like preparing to have to fight for its life. And so she was like, when you said like you had to get up and run from the room, you did that because that's what your body was telling you to do. And my counselor did an amazing job of just normalizing that the way my body was responding is actually good and healthy if I were in danger. What we have to work on is my perception of things. And so, you know, that's what she's like, we could, you know, try a bunch of different medications and stuff. And she's like, and that would definitely help. But if we want to get to, you know, this, the deep core of things, we have to work on how you're perceiving things. And so that's where I definitely think there are times where, I mean, obviously I needed anxiety medication and depression medication to get through high school and stuff, but I feel like I, I'm getting to a place where I don't necessarily need that to function. And I think that that's why it's such a personal journey and a personal decision on if you're going to take medication or not, because, you know, everybody's body is different. And if your body's going to respond, like there's a gun to your head and you need medication to help that, then like, that's what's going to be needed. But if you're starting to, you know, get to a further place of like healing where your body's not responding that way and you can try and kind of process and cope through things, then that's when you can start working on your perception of like what danger is. And I saw a quote the other day that it said, the feelings are real, but the danger is not. Mm. And so just kind of normalizing that of like your body's feeling this and it's good. That means that like your fight or flight you know, system is actually responding really well. It's super healthy. Like Mm -hmm. it's going off all the time. It's just, we've got to work on slowing down, being mindful and saying, am I in danger? Is this an emergency? And I feel like I've just been able to like learn to kind of cope with things that way. Yeah. That's a really good point about medication being like such a personal decision because it is, and people want to ask us or their mental health care provider, like if they should. And it's like, well, (laughs) it's up, you know, it's depends. Like, are you able, are you at a place where you can do the work so that you can start to heal or do you need the medication to get you to that place? Yes. Cause that's what I've always heard it explained that way. Like 
the medication and some people truly do need to be on it like for the rest of their life. And that is totally fine. But there are some people that maybe would be on it for the rest of their life and not necessarily need to be because the medication can kind of help lift you up out of that fog to where you finally have the energy and the capability to start working on like the other stuff that you just didn't have the energy to do before. Yeah. It gives you the, the, the brain space and the the capacity to just yes. to work truly, the tools. Yeah. You truly don't have the capacity when you're in that deep pit of just like intense anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely in the very early stages, like I just, I was not functioning and I probably should have been medicated. Same with like how medication is such a personal decision. So is finding a counselor. Like if anybody's, you know, debating going to counseling and then they go and they have a bad experience, I feel like they have to keep faith that they'll eventually find someone because it's not like a one size fits all. One counselor might be great for someone and then awful for a different person. And there's all different, you know, methods that they use and mentalities that they have and their own, you know, biases. And so finding a counselor that is a good fit for you is what I think can really get you on that path to healing and just to not be discouraged if you're trying to find that person and it's kind of hard and you're not there yet where you've like like found that perfect fit. Yeah. I, I'll often describe it. Like it's like dating. It is. <laughs> like you might go on a couple dates before you find someone you connect with. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, definitely. You're kind of interviewing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And to like, uh, it's also important, like, like a dating relationship, maybe you go on three dates and you're like, Oh, actually this isn't working for me. And it's frustrating to have to start over, but you do. Oh yeah. It can find be so someone. frustrating. But at the end of the day, you're the one paying them. Like, I think sometimes since they are kind of in a position of like authority over you, you can feel really intimidated. And I think that's what's happened with like one of my counselors previously is she was very pushy. I remember that she would kind of give me like tasks that she would want me to do each week. And this is how like low functioning I was. I remember I had an anxiety attack in her office because she simply asked me, I want you to go for a walk by yourself around the block. And that was it. That was all she wanted me to do. And just in the office, I had an anxiety attack, just thinking about it. And I just was met with such like shame and just the look in her eyes. I felt so judged. Whereas like the counselor I have now, I feel like she would have taken a step back and been like, okay, like this is clearly something we need to talk a little bit more about. And I'm like, that's not something you have to do. It's not dire. Whereas my other counselor just kind of was like, okay, next week, like you better have done that. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, clearly, like I was not, I was not ready for it. It wasn't going to be beneficial to me. If anything, I feel like just having the anxiety attack in her office, like I went home that night and had suicidal thoughts. Cause it's like, how can I be a mother if I can't even walk around the block by myself? Mm -hmm. And so just, she put a lot of doubt in my mind. And then, you know, finding the new counselor that I see now, she has offered me so much encouragement. And so I think like back to what I was saying is they're kind of in this position of authority over you and you can start to feel shame and disgust with yourself when in all actuality, it's like, you're their boss. Like you are paying them at any moment. You have the right to say, this isn't working and I'm going to go find somebody that is a better fit for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, but there can be that power like that they have because they're the in air quotes so no one can see me <laughs> no one can see is <laughs> like expert you know like yes, they're yeah. the expert so but really 
I mean, all of us are the experts in our own lives. So mm-hmm. they're just there they to should empower you. They should yeah. empower you to feel that way. Definitely. Yeah. There, there's like a guide and a resource, but we all, even in our darkest moments, like we know ourselves best, like your body was mm-hmm. just saying like, no, I can't, I can't go for a walk by myself now. Like that, that's not mm-hmm. happening. That's so embarrassing to think about. <sighs> I mean, I I really was. It's funny, even just like, it's so crazy looking back at where I was. And that's why I know that some moms probably even listening to this right now, if they're in the pit that I was then hearing me talk right now is probably so irritating because I remember I would get irritated. Like it's never going to get better. I'm always going to feel this way. And like, you don't know how bad it is. And you know, all these thoughts of like, no one understands like the deep pit that I'm in. But I feel like I truly have been there and there's definitely hope on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's something you can definitely work through and something that it's not permanent. I think that when you're in the midst of anxiety and depression, everything feels so permanent and our feelings are so finicky. Like they're all over the place. And even though we know that it can feel like this is going to last forever and I'm never going to get out of this, but you know, the person that I am right now is not the person that I will be next week or a month from now or a year from now. And, you know, you're always changing and evolving. And even like these deep lows or the deep highs, they're not going to last forever. So nothing is permanent. And I feel like that's just an important thing for moms that are going through these struggles to, you know, just keep in mind that it's not going to last forever. It truly is impossible for it to last forever. Yeah. And I think that's so true. But when you're in it, like, and you said like, you're, you're, you know, you feel like silly or embarrassed, like thinking about how things were. And like, I mean, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't a podcast about me, but I, you know, I have those same things where I was just like, I couldn't handle the most basic things. And so many of us who do struggle, like we feel that and we go through that Mm -hmm. and it's so you know, I don't want to speak for anybody, but I've heard from a lot of people that it is really helpful just to hear like, yeah, I, I did that too. Mm-hmm. And I, here I am on the other side of it and it won't last forever. Mm-hmm. So I'm really yeah, appreciative no. that you're being so candid and like telling us these things. Cause there's one person out there who's going to, to hear your story and really connect. I mean, hopefully there's more than one, but <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh. I'm really curious about how you knew when things were getting better. Ooh, that is a good question. I'm trying to think. I don't know. There definitely wasn't just like a moment. And honestly, as awful as this is going to sound, I feel like I didn't have like a deep feeling of like that I'm mentally doing well until my brother's passing. Mm. Sorry, I'm going to get like emotional. Yeah. Um, but to be able to go through something so painful on a heart level, Mm -hmm. um, but to still be able to, like I said, experience those deep, intense lows and then to not feel suicidal and to just even have like hope to know that this is something that this is hard, but I can get through it. I really think had this happened years ago, I definitely wouldn't be driving and I would be just so debilitated and 
just probably laying in bed all day and just unable to cope. But as strange as it sounds, it's his passing that has so, has shown me just how mentally strong I've gotten over the past few years. And like I said, it doesn't take anything away from the pain or the heartbreak. Um, I mean, I'm liter- I've literally cried every day, but even that, like I'm able to look at like me crying and me being upset as this is normal and this is okay. And this is what a normal person going through something this traumatic would, you know, have happen. And that's something too, I think our society just needs to like, in a weird way too, even his passing has freed me of like, I am going through a lot and I am in so much pain that usually I would be very self-conscious to go out in public with no makeup on or my hair done. And it's like, I just don't care anymore. Like that stuff does not matter. And that's not to say like, I still, I feel pressured to, you know, put up a front for people. But even the people closest to me, honestly, before all of this, the only people I'd probably let see, like, let see me with no um, makeup on would be my husband and my parents and my brother. And now, you know, people want to come over and offer support and be with me. And I'm fine just like coming out of the shower and being my hair soaking wet. I have no makeup on because in my mind, it's like, this is what someone should look like when they are going through grief. And I think that mothers need that permission. Like no mother should be expected you know, even like six months in, I feel like, like if you're having company over, you have full permission to be sitting there with greasy hair and a messy bun on top of your head and like walking around with your robe on because it's easier access to your boobs for when the baby wants to nurse. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I just don't get why there's so much pressure for us to always look, you know, so put together and like everything's fine when it's really not. Yeah. And so, yeah, even for mothers, like I feel bad that I keep tying all of this, like the grief and the depression and, you know, all of it together. But I do think it's all so interwoven that there's just hardships in life that people are going to go through. And we have to stop with this like pressure and expectation of just having everything cleaned up and, you know, crystal clear and everything's fine and dandy when it's never like that. I think a lot of us fall victim to the um, like this or that thinking. That's something that I've had to work on is it's not like with my brother's passing or with having a child, it's not, I'm miserable or I'm happy. I'm, you know, depressed or I'm joyous. Like within all of that, there's all these interwoven things where it's like, I'm depressed and I have moments of joy. I'm grieving and I have moments where I'm thankful for the life that I have still. And so to change these this or that statements to its and, I think is so important. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that we we hold at once. And it's just such a, like, I think it's so great that you're sharing about your brother's passing and the grief. And because life is messy and we don't, you know, like we don't go through one thing at a time. It's always like within this context of mm-hmm. just life. Sometimes we you know, when things fall apart, we realize how strong and resilient we really are. Mm -hmm. Well, and even looking back, I know that um, within that, you know, that period of time when I was going through the postpartum depression and anxiety really badly, I remember telling my counselor, like, I look around and I feel like everybody 
is either, you know, content or happy. And then they have moments of panic or sadness. And I said, and I feel like I'm overall panicked, sad, anxious, and I'm only having moments of joy. Mm. And I think that's the difference between when somebody is, you know, functioning in a place of like mental wellness or mental illness is it's, that's a huge difference to either be having only moments of panic or sadness or stress, but overall you're content or having only moments of content. Like that's just a huge, there's a huge difference there. And I think people need to understand that, that when you are sitting in a place of mental wellness, it's easy to look down on someone and be like, well, you know, you've got all these blessings and all these things to be thankful for. And, you know, I saw you post on Instagram and you looked so happy. And it's like, those are moments though. And when you're functioning from a place of mental illness, those moments are literally sometimes the only thing like helping you to survive it. And that's not like the rule for you. That's Mm -hmm. like the exception. Mm -hmm. And so just getting to a place where the rule for you is content and there's an exception of sadness. That was always, you know, like my goal, I guess, getting through that postpartum phase is like, I just, I don't want to be in this moment of, or this life of experiencing only moments of joy. Like I need to get where that's like the rule and the exception is having like bad moments. I feel like we could talk all day (laughs) because that social media piece too is such a big thing of like, you know, social media is such a curated display <laughs> it is of how we're doing and that someone can look like they're doing great and they're they're not they're like holding on by the skin of their teeth it's just added a whole new layer to <laughs> it has so it really has yes well cuz even i mean i feel like people just like forget that like I don't know. It's like they see your social media page and then they forget that like maybe you're a real person and you have a life. And like, it's like, clearly if I'm going to post something, it's most likely going to be a smiling picture. Like I'm not going to stop and take a video in the midst of like a panic attack. <laughs> so that's what, you know, people a lot of times don't highlight the hard times that they go through. And that's why I do. I try to be so conscious of on my social media to post things. But even just recently, I remember making a post about you know, the hardships of going through grief with the loss of my brother. And I wrote like, I hate how clean this looks. Like Mm. I hated the fact that people would be reading it and they'd see like, I broke down and cried and I can't hold it together and I'm a mess. And it just still, it looks so clean. Like, unless you're actually sitting in the room with me and like watching it happen, no one's going to understand it. And even just watching, like you're not feeling it either. Mm -hmm. So there's only so much I guess, empathy that we can give when we're reading people's social media posts and even when we're in the same room with them. But I think it's important that we just have to be so cognizant of all the struggles that people are going through and trying to take when they are vulnerable like that, like as truth. When someone says they need help, they need help. When someone says they're overwhelmed, they're overwhelmed. Like regardless of the picture has them smiling in it. If they say that they're going through something, they're going through it. Mm -hmm. You just don't see it. Yeah. And I think especially like you said, for moms, there's like this. And I mean, like, it's probably true of all parents, but I, I've seen it mostly with with people who are, are mothers and, and women. But this 
this keeping up of appearances. And we've had clients who have been, you know, very suicidal and have gone to get emergency healthcare for it. And they're not taken seriously because they do look like they're holding it all together. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, these are people in, in deep distress, but we are, are all so conditioned to think of someone as presenting well, that they are mm-hmm. well, but yes, we don't that's have... So true don't have a sense of what's inside. And I had that experience too, getting, uh, talking to someone after having my, my daughter, I had very severe anxiety and I lost a ton of weight. So I looked like I was like, just, you know, killing it, you know, like (laughs) exercising and eating well. And really I just wasn't eating. Um, (laughs) it's like, no, this is coming from severe pain. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm like, but everyone was saying, you look so good. Oh my gosh, you look amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm dying. Mm-hmm. I'm dying inside. And, Ugh, so, and then to have it complimented. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what builds such a weird thing too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what my, my mom has lost a lot of weight since my brother's passing. And there's people that literally have like greeted her with like, Oh, what's your secret? You're losing so much weight. And it's like, Oh, I know again, their intentions are not bad, but it's like, do you realize what you just said to a grieving mother? Like she is not losing weight because she wants to, she is losing weight because a whole chunk of her heart is like no longer on the planet. Mm. Mm. It just, yeah. I, I don't think people understand sometimes with, you know, like physical appearances and I'm actually the opposite. Like how I was saying, there is a handful of people that have seen me with no makeup on. And that's when I'm feeling the most accepted and the most loved is when I look the worst. Mm. (laughs) And so it's like the more makeup I'm putting on, the better I look. That's like the more insecure, the more unfit, the more, you know, just bad inside I'm feeling. So yeah, when people would come over and visit after I had Dawson and I looked good, it's like, this isn't because I'm mentally doing well. It's actually because I'm I'm not comfortable enough to look like crap, (laughs) you know? So for me, it's the opposite. I feel like the worse I look, I'm actually probably functioning a little bit better because I'm comfortable with myself and I'm comfortable being myself around you. Mm -hmm. So that is so sad that women are met with that where it's like, oh, well, you came in with your makeup done and you know, you've got your business clothes on and you must be doing well if you're still able to go to work and it's like what they don't see is that maybe on your drive to work, you're considering crashing your car or you're having a panic attack or, you know, whatever the story may be, they're not seeing that. Should we, should we jump into talking about your book? I'm like, I'm so curious about like what led you to have that idea? Like is being an author something that you'd always wanted to do and what are your hopes and dreams for your book and all of that? Yeah. So I definitely, writing has always been something I have thoroughly enjoyed. I've loved writing ever since I was little. And even now it's just, it's such a therapy for me. And then when I'll write kind of like vulnerable posts and just have people reach out afterwards and say like, oh my gosh, you know, like that really helped me. And I can't believe that, you know, someone else is feeling that way. It just reaffirms for me that, you know, I'm doing the right thing by kind of like sharing my struggles And then also I'm very like, I don't know. I also play the guitar and sing and I don't ever write music unless it's like, I feel like God just like inspires me. I don't know how else to put it. And that's how this book kind of came about was 
um, my son was sleeping and I was holding him and I had my phone and I just started writing like a little poem for him. And it just like poured out of me. Like I feel sometimes like I can't even take credit for it because it just poured out of me. And my husband came home and I was like, David, I feel like this could be a children's book. And he's like, really? And I was just like smiling really big. And I think he could tell, like, I wasn't just kind of like saying this into the air. Like he could tell this was something I really wanted to do. And he's like, okay, well, let's do it then. And so then I was like, okay. So we kind of went on this journey of figuring out there's so much that goes into it, just finding an illustrator and a publishing company and, you know, all kinds of things that we knew nothing about. And so once we finally found the um, publishing company we wanted to go through, and then I found, um, I actually used my old art teacher from grade school. Her daughter and I have been friends since we were young, and then she taught me an art, and I had her do the illustrations, and the book just kind of started coming together. I started having even like more of an idea for it, but I didn't know how to explain it to people because... I did. I felt like such an idiot when I would try to explain it. Cause I'm like, it's a children's book, but for moms. Mm. And I remember having a lady in our town that had published a book. She came over and kind of gave me some tips and there were actually things in the book that I changed because she was so wonderful and she helped so much. But even when I was explaining it to her, I kept getting kind of flustered over my words. And like, I just didn't know how to explain it because she's like, so is it a children's book or is it for the mom? And I'm like, well, it's both. And she's like, well, why wouldn't you just do a children's book then? Or, you know, why wouldn't you do it just for the moms? And yeah, I would just get so flustered trying to explain it to people. But basically the first part of the book is that poem that I wrote for Dawson. And it explains just like really gently, but also honestly, kind of, you know, the struggles that you go through as a mother. It you know, says there's um, that, you know, mommy cries too, and um, that I won't always get it right. And just being vulnerable with your children and saying like, mommy's learning too. This is new to me. And on the back of it, it says when a child is born, so too is a mother. And I feel like our kids don't know that. And we need to let them know that, that like we are growing with them. And so we are going to make mistakes and there's going to be things that we need to apologize for. And we're going to get overwhelmed just as easily as they do sometimes. And I wanted that first part to kind of explain that to children. And then in the back of the book, the last five pages, I believe, it has um, just different resources. It explains what perinatal mood disorders even are. It explains a little bit about postpartum psychosis um, and like the seriousness of that and, you know, getting immediate care for that. It explains the difference between baby, baby blues and perinatal mood disorders. It has emotional, behavioral, physical signs and symptoms to look out for. It has a whole list of just ways to support a mom um, with a perinatal mood disorder. And then it has Bible verses. And so I just felt like I wanted the back of the book to be a way that kind of fully encompassed how I myself needed supported. And so that's why I had, you know, ways for other people to support. I had Bible verses, I had the resources and I truly feel like if I had had this book, I might have sought help sooner. Or if like my husband maybe had seen it, he would have maybe encouraged me to get help sooner. And that's why I just love that I did, you know, kind of make it. It's a children's book, but it's for the mom. And so most moms that are struggling in that postpartum phase, 
even if you gifted them a book specifically about postpartum depression, like the chances of them sitting down and reading a chapter book are pretty low, but them sitting down and reading a book with their child before bed and then kind of just skimming over these things might be enough that it, you know, gives them some red flags of like, Hey, I might be struggling more than what I realized. And this is giving me hope that I can seek help and it won't be like this forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're so right. Like we, the chances of a parent with a young child being able to take the time for themselves and even being like aware that something is wrong enough that they should be sitting down to read a book, but like, I don't have time to read a parenting book and my kids are six and nine. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful way to kind of like approach it at a different way, like approach the information in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's really, I just wanted to make it really simplistic. And then I really do feel like, I don't know. I feel like as far as even just like marketing it, because that's where my husband kind of came in where he was like, we definitely can do this, but like, I don't want to be investing all this money. And then, you know, we wouldn't even break even on it. And I do feel like it literally anybody could get this book and it would somehow be beneficial because there's so many moms just through doing this that I've spoken with that even though they're like grandmas now, they were raising children in a time where this was not talked about at all. So they like looking back, they know that that's what they were experiencing, but in the midst of it, there was no awareness, no support. And they literally felt like they were going crazy. Um, And so even just a book like this to gift to like a grandma or something, I feel like would be beneficial because it can put a name and a face to what they were going through and then offer them healing of like, look at all that's being done now that so that other moms don't have to go through the same thing you did alone. I love that you say that about like people who have been through it before. Like I find you can always heal, like no matter where you are in your journey. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read the, I haven't held your book in my hand, but I've read through the, the PDF file. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's really like beautiful and, and touching and like, it, it is more of a message, you know, for the, for the mom, but it's also important mm-hmm. for our kids to hear from a young age, you know, that yeah. it's okay to have a hard time. And well, and I think so much of us are like, I don't know why it is. Cause even um, just like if I've ever given people advice with like, if they're dating someone and they get into an argument with like their husband or their boyfriend or something, I don't know why all of us have trouble like admitting that we're having a hard time or that we're mad or anything. Like, I just know there's so many arguments that stem from like, my husband will come home and I'm kind of in a mood and he's like, are you in a bad mood? And I'm like, no, why? And then Mm -hmm. he gets in a bad mood because I will admit that I'm in a bad mood. And then we're both in a bad mood and we're both struggling. And like, I think it's just been so ingrained in a lot of us since childhood that like, because I think a lot of times punishments come into play. Mm -hmm. And so like as a child, you get overwhelmed and you're having a hard time and you're angry or whatever it may be. And then you're punished for it. That now all of a sudden as adults, when we are going through something hard or we're in a bad mood or we're grouchy or whatever, we have a hard time just even admitting that we're having a hard time. And so I hope that my book just can show like, if you're having a hard time, there are resources. It's okay to be having a hard time. And although it might not be normal for all the other moms that have children and don't go through a perinatal mood disorder, what you're experiencing is actually very normal for someone going through that. 
Mm-hmm. And just that it's okay. I don't know why we as adults have, you know, just such a hard time saying like, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just admitting it. I think that's some of the hardest steps is just admitting like, I have a problem and I need help and I'm not okay. And there's so much power when we do say those mm-hmm. words and reach out for help. Yeah. You think for you're sure. giving power up, but you're actually taking the power back into your hands by saying like, I have the power to admit this and to take it into my own capacity of like what I'm going to do with it rather than just bottling it up and never exposing it and dealing with it all alone. And I know that that was part of my trap and why I fell so far (laughs) was that I did feel like I had to do this alone. And I was putting a lot of value judgment on myself of like not being strong, not being strong enough to, Mm-hmm. to just do deal with it all in my own head. Yeah. Well, and I don't think I see a lot of people like when you hear one in five, it sounds like a lot, but in a weird way, it really it is, but it isn't because I know in my own community with the women that I know, there've been some friends, you know, that have had children and I will be so over the top, like texting them and are you okay? How are your thoughts? Like all of this stuff. And they are adjusting, you know, just perfectly fine. And I remember kind of talking to my mom and just being kind of like, it's not that I'm wanting them to have a hard time. It's just, it's making me feel so like ostracized and isolated. And the fact that like, of all the people that I know that are like my age having kids right now, like I kind of was the only one that was debilitated by it, but it, that's just within my community, you know, and my mom reminded me one people kind of will put on a brave face and they might not be being as vulnerable with you. And two, there are women out there that are feeling the exact same way I am surrounded by all those other, you know, four out of the five that aren't struggling. And then they're going to feel isolated and alone unless more of us start speaking out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And it's also like, I remind myself that just because someone isn't struggling right now, it doesn't mean that they won't later. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's also such a gift to give people to just show that you're, you're interested in how they're doing and maybe right now they're fine, but then you become a safe person for them to come to. Yes. Yeah. If they're not definitely. doing well. Thanks so much, Allie. Uh-huh. <laughs> this conversation has been like, great. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about your book or about anything else before we kind of wrap up? I don't think so. Other than I have like social media pages. They're just, if Mm -hmm. mommy's being honest on Facebook and Instagram. So if anybody wants to follow along on the journey there and then really other than that, I don't think so. I just want to thank you for having me on here. It's very humbling and um, I'm just really honored to be able to be on the show. Yeah. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. And yeah, I'll put all of your, your social media stuff and if you have like a preferred place where if people are interested in your book, you want them to get it. I know some people like want to, you know, avoid Amazon or whatever. <laughs> say, that's what, if people are local, I have like tons on hand, but then um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and Walmart, I believe all carry my book. And there's even more. I think if you honestly just Google, if mommy's being honest, it'll pull up a bunch of different places that have it online. Mm. So um, any of those, especially if you want to avoid Amazon, yeah, just Google it. And there's a bunch of avenues you can take for it. Great. Yeah. The question that I, I am trying to wrap up most of the interviews with is 
if you could go back in time to a time when you were struggling the most and talk to yourself, is there anything in particular that you might say? Hmm, That's such a good question. I feel like I would say that nothing is permanent and that, like I had said before, everything is fleeting. And so especially our emotions, we cannot rely on them as truth, even though it feels like an absolute truth the hole that you are in is it's fake. It's an illusion. And so if you feel like you are in this pit that you will never, ever get out of, you might be in it now. And that, that fear and that pain that you're experiencing, that's not the illusion. It's just that it won't last forever and that all things are fleeting and passing and good times will come. Amazing. Thanks so much. Hello again. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. It was honestly one of those conversations that could have gone on forever and ever and ever. I just felt like we kept picking up these really important pieces. And, you know, maybe Allie will one day come back and we can again talk about all the things that we didn't get a chance to really dive into. Uh, That being said, I do have, of course, thoughts on all the things we talked about. And if I talk about them all, (laughs) we might be here forever. One of my big takeaways of this episode is the harm that can result when religion, faith, or spirituality is used to bypass feelings of distress or struggle or mental illness, or it becomes a, if I if I was better, if I was better at this, whatever faith practice or religion, I would not be struggling. And I think there's a lot of harm that really results in that. And if that's resonating with you, I just would like you to know that you deserve support and you're not bad. And mental illness is an illness. It's not something that can be prevented necessarily by having a particular faith tradition or spiritual belief. And you definitely deserve support. And again, you are not bad if you are part of a faith tradition or spirituality and you are struggling. It does not mean anything about you. It's just something that happens and you really do deserve support. And I feel like a discussion about that could probably go on for hours and hours and hours. And of course, there's nuance to that. And I also just would like to emphasize that you you do deserve support. If you're struggling, you are not bad. You're not a failure. And um, yes, you deserve support. And I think I've said that like 85 times already this episode, but it's true. Also, the same goes for having thoughts of suicide. It's an interesting thing where we put a value judgment on, on people who who are thinking of hurting themselves or having thoughts like that. And I just want you to know, too, that it's it's not your fault if you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide. It's something that our brains do when we are in a lot of pain. And if you're thinking to yourself, I would never leave my family, I would never want to hurt my children, of course, of course, of course, I totally believe you. And if you're having thoughts of suicide, it does not mean that you want any of those things. It means that you are in a lot of pain and distress and your brain is clinging to these thoughts as a way to process or get you out of pain and 
If you're having any sort of thoughts about harm or suicide, you do deserve support. You really do. And if you know someone who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, both you and them deserve support. So if the thoughts are causing you a lot of distress, or if you've thought about how, or you have a plan of how you might harm yourself, please reach out for help immediately. Please don't wait. If you feel like you're in imminent danger of harm, please call 911 or go to your closest emergency room. If you're in Vancouver proper, there's the Access and Assessment Center at VGH, which is a really good place to go to, or give them a call. You can also call your local crisis line or suicide hotline. Here in BC, the local crisis line number is 310-6789. And the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is one 456 4566. If you're having thoughts of suicide, maybe they're more intrusive thoughts or they feel less dangerous or less imminent, and you would like some support from us, we are available Monday to Friday, 10 to 3, and our phone number is 604 255 7999. And you can reach us by phone or text message to that number. And if it's long distance for you, our toll-free phone line is 1-855-255-7999. And of course, if you are in crisis, please do not wait for us to get back to you. Please call your local crisis line. And like I said just a minute ago, here in BC, the local crisis line is 310-6789. 